figured out the microphone, so that's the, the hardest part, so I'm told. So, uh, let's start this morning by jumping straight into the text. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The identity of Christ has long been a question in the church. You could say that Jesus himself started the questioning when he asked, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Peter, in the heat of the moment, responded with maybe the first thing that came to mind, the powerful title of the Messiah. Paul, on the other hand, uh, has a little more time to think about this and doesn't have Jesus staring him straight in the eyes. Uh, so you might expect his answer to be a little more robust and really provide this supremely powerful image of Christ, the Messiah. But before we dive into Paul's description of who Jesus is, I think it's important to point out why Paul even answers this question. The Colossians didn't ask Paul to answer it for them. In fact, they had an answer, and they were pretty happy with it. But Paul, being a good parent, wasn't too pleased with what he heard. He realized that he hadn't actually given them direct teaching on who Jesus was and is. It's not that the church was willfully disobedient, but it had slowly veered off the course, or maybe it had never really been on the right course to begin with. The importance of small corrections is huge. For example, if an airplane flies just a degree off course, you know, after, you know, an hour, even longer, it's way off course. Um, one thing Colleen didn't mention is that I was a math minor. So, uh, really, let's say we have a plane <laughs> kind of heading along at 550 miles per hour, which is the average flight speed of a Boeing 47, 747. Um, and it gets off by one degree. Uh, after an hour, how far off will it be? I guess you guys probably weren't expecting to use the law of cosines this morning. Um, but 
the answer for all of you. It's about 10 miles, which doesn't seem like a lot. Um, but let's say you're flying to Hawaii, where my wife is from. Uh, so it's about a five-hour plane ride. Uh, if you do that, you end up being 48 miles off course. So instead of landing in Honolulu, you land uh, right about whoop, there, <laughs> which is nowhere near where you want to be and in the middle of the ocean. Um, and that's just one degree off. Imagine if you are two or three degrees or, heaven forbid, ten degrees, which is already really small. Um, for those wondering, ten degrees would put you 479.36 miles away from your target, um, which is roughly the distance between Santa Barbara and Redding, California. So you could imagine your surprise if you landed there. But back to Paul. Paul and the Colossians, who had veered from their flight plan. The details of the Colossians' beliefs are lost in time, but the image that Paul brings forth in this passage highlights some of the issues that he saw, some of the places where they had begun to stray. Is Jesus God? Was Jesus created? What is the resurrection, and what did it do? These are all important questions when it comes to the identity of Christ, and Paul rightly identifies that without proper answers to these questions, the Colossian church will soon be very far away from where it ought to be. So, this passage seeks to make sure the Colossians are on the right course, and it serves as a reminder to us of where we are headed and why we're heading that direction. In order to move in the right direction, we must first know our destination. So, in this case, our destination or our focus is Christ. So who is Jesus? Paul doesn't try to give an exhaustive description of Jesus, um, and neither will we today. Uh, that would take too long. Instead, he poetically highlights certain areas that help us in narrowing our focus and giving this picture of who Christ is. First, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Images have one basic role. To represent that which they are the image of. A picture represents a person. A movie represents a story. A statue represents an important person or maybe an important time or event. In the ancient world, before photographs or movies or the endless stream of images that we see now, images were meant for something special. They were crafted for a purpose. You don't simply put up a statue of a monarch so you can remember what they look like, what their hair was like, if they had a beard. You put it up as a representation of that monarch's power, as a visible manifestation of what that person stands for. Jesus is the visible representation and manifestation of God's power on earth. And the simple phrase from Paul, you know, the image of the invisible God, is such a poignant and accessible way to say that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% human. There's both a visible human nature and a divine, um, invisible, I guess, invisible divine nature. Throughout history, much like the Colossian church, Different groups of Christians have attempted to explain away some of this divine mystery uh, at the expense of Christ's natures. 
Uh, here are a few examples of Christians getting a few degrees off. Um, and they have really great names, too. Apollinarianism, which is really hard to spell, um, basically said that Jesus had a human body, but on the inside he was divine. I have this, uh, for lack of a better uh, description, uh, we have uh, Terminator Jesus, who looks like a human on the outside, but on the inside is not. Um, you have modalism, where it's really one God, but this one God is kind of... Uh, being used in different roles, really kind of putting on different masks. Think of like the ancient Greek masks. Oh, now this is happy God or sad God, or this is Jesus God. Um, but really just one God who acts in these different ways, um, which is, you know, just a little bit off. Um, or one of my personal favorites, uh, docetism, which essentially says that Jesus um, was God, had, you know, is fully divine, but the physical body was just an illusion. Um, or... I like to think of it, hologram Jesus. So the first 400 plus years of the church are spent trying to figure out who Jesus is and frankly, trying to make Jesus fit into molds that make sense to us because this 100% God and 100% human didn't make sense. Trying to fit Jesus into human molds. Another set of heresies about Christ revolve around how and when Christ came into existence. Don't worry, no more names of uh, complicated heresies. Paul states that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. And that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Clearly, Christ and creation are intimately connected. The title, Firstborn of Creation, does not point to Jesus being created, though, like you and me. Instead, it's a title of honor. The firstborn not only received the inheritance, but he, because it was a male-dominated society, also possessed the rights and privileges of that family. To have the title of firstborn is to be in charge of the family's continuation, in charge of the family name. If you reread this passage... You'll notice that Paul never says that Jesus was created. He appears to be around before creation and to be the reason for creation, but we still don't say that Jesus was created. Instead, Christians have said that Jesus is the Son of God and that God beget Jesus. Um, I think C.S. Lewis really uh, puts this uh, point better than I could. Um, in mere Christianity. We don't use the words begetting or begotten much in modern English, but everyone still knows what they mean. Debatable. <laughs> to beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets hu human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something different, something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set. Or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say, a statue. If he's a clever enough carver, he may make a statue which is very like, very, uh, very like a man indeed. But of course, it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. 
Now this is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. What God creates is not God, just as what man creates is not man. It's a powerful description of what it means to be God. Through Jesus' unique relationship to creation, he is both the agent and the goal of creation. He also holds it all together. There's no part of creation which Jesus is not involved in intimately because he is the son of God, the firstborn of creation. The last major issue around the person of Christ involves the resurrection. Paul, again, uses the title firstborn to describe Christ's rising from the dead. Now this one's a little easier because obviously Christ was not the firstborn from the dead. He was not the first person to be raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus before Jesus raised. So that one's a little easier. But this coming back to life was different. By defeating death, Christ changed everything. This, according to Paul, was the beginning of the church. Being the firstborn from the dead means that Christ has the power of life and is the head of those who are truly alive. So the Christ that we worship is truly and fully God while being truly and fully human. He's God on earth. Jesus is also a creator of the same essence as God the Father, keeping creation from falling apart and ultimately redeeming all of humanity. The redemption comes through his death and resurrection, which is manifested by hope, reconciliation, and the peace of God. This is the Jesus that we must head towards. This is the Jesus we cannot stray from. So the real question for today is not so much, who is Jesus? But who are we? Where are we headed? The destination we are headed towards is our identity. And identity right now is a huge topic, um, especially in the United States. Uh, for the next several months in particular, identifiers like Republican and Democrat and Independent and Libertarian will be thrown out probably daily. There are also labels like Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, which have been creating an identity of particular groups. There's sexual identity with heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transgender. There are also labels like refugee, immigrant, terrorist, martyr, dictator. These are but a few of the labels that you can find daily through any news organization or social media site. We're pummeled with different labels to attach to our identity with different destinations with which to identify ourselves. Thankfully, the destination is not the only piece of information we're given in Colossians, though. The path is littered with signs and encouragements to let us know that we're on the right path so that we continue moving in the right direction. Right now, we have the hope promised by the gospel. An Anglican theologian once defined hope as faith standing on tiptoe. I love that image. Faith is kind of the thing we stand on, and hope is just peering a little bit taller, just to get the smallest glimpse of what's coming. 
When God came to earth, humanity was given the hope that only Jesus could bring. The hope that God is bigger than we imagine. The hope that God does not fit into our neat, tidy boxes. The hope of glory. The work of Christ was not simply to provide us something to look forward to, though. It does something here and now. Paul writes that through him, Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Verse 22 um, in the NIV, um, it reads, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Reconciliation, true reconciliation, comes only on the path to Jesus. The world that God created has been reconciled, which means that the relationships that ought to exist can exist. A lot can be said about reconciliation. Uh, Right now, it's becoming more and more clear that people and the countries they live in need reconciliation. They need to be restored. We need to be restored. Our lives have been reconciled to God. That was done on the cross. Our relationships with others should reflect our standing before God. And right now, the world isn't seeing that. The hope that we have and the reconciliation that God has made with us can only lead to one thing, the peace of God. A peace that is not simply the absence of conflict. This is a peace that knows no limits. It involves all of God's creation. It's a peace that makes us holy. It's a peace that makes us blameless before God. It's a peace that frees us from any and all bondages. Physical, emotional, spiritual. We get to see glimpses of this peace now, but we're pressing on so that we might fully experience the peace of God. The one catch is that this peace comes only through the blood of Christ. There was a price to be paid, but Jesus did that for you and for me. So, there's a destination and there's a flight path. Unfortunately, or rather ultimately, hope, reconciliation, and peace direct us straight to Christ. This is the focus. This is the destination. If we veer, we're not lost forever, but we need to make those small corrections so we can set our eyes upon Jesus and get back on that path. Christians are a people headed in the direction of Christ. We are seeking the Christ that is the image of the invisible God. We're seeking the Christ that is the agent of creation, the one who secures all things in heaven and on earth, the one who died for the reconciliation of all things to God. Christians, the Christ ones, set their focus on the hope that God offers, the reconciliation that the, rec- that the resurrection brought, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. When I first learned to snowboard, I was taught something very important. Where you look is where you'll go, which is why you never look at trees. If you look at a tree, you go toward the, the tree and you will hit the tree. 
when you look where you want to end up, that's where you're taken. Jesus Christ, our hope, our reconciliation, our peace, must be our focus. When he is that focus, we'll stay on the path of righteousness, securely established in our faith, being holy and blameless and irreproachable. And this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's spend a moment in prayer.